Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast, your, well, maybe not your favorite Bob Dylan podcast, but certainly one of the Bob Dylan podcasts. It might that be the, the Bob Dylan podcast that you have like a personal vendetta against. Yes. <laughs> if you're one of a select few people on Twitter, it would appear. Uh, I'm Ian. I'm Evan. And today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, someone who most definitely knows more about Bob Dylan than we do, um, but we're going to pretend like he doesn't. Um, Hi, it's John Worcester. How are you? And I, I wouldn't say that. I, th- I think you guys know more than I do. But, but I do want to say this. Every interview I've done in this room for the last year and a half, I have used this book as, as, like a, as the thing I put my, my laptop on. But <laughs> I, ha- I might use it today. So I, I had to, to use the uh, Rob Halford and the Chris Hillman memoirs. Here we go. We're battling. Bob Dylan, all the songs. You can't see it, folks, because you're listening to a podcast, but John and I are both holding up the very (laughs) same book. Uh, Bob Dylan, the story behind every track, all the songs by Philippe Margotin and Jean-Michel Guizdon. (laughs) By two Frenchmen. (laughs) Two French guys. Uh, Bob Dylan, uh, all the songs. (laughs) Also known as the, the world's thickest book. Yeah, it's not a very uh, not a very travel sized book. I usually use uh, my Thomas Pynchon, Mason and Dixon to put my <laughs> um, my computer on, which is yeah. you know it's a pretty good computer stand. Um, I've not uh, read past page three, but uh, that's someday. how it goes for most uh, Pynchon books. My girlfriend gave me this Bob Dylan book for Christmas, um, and uh, we had to fly across the country with it, and it was not oh. the greatest thing to put into a suitcase. That's all you can put in the suitcase. Yeah, yeah. you get one one carry-on for just like a tome. <laughs> yeah, you, it's like when you go to Target and uh, you get a thing of paper towels and they give you that plastic uh, sticker thing as a handle. Like yeah. that's that's just how you carry it. Yeah, it's like, yeah. like a rabbi carrying around the, the whole Torah scrolls, you know, <laughs> right. wrapped in, in felt and stuff. <laughs> Uh, anyways, you know, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure that you all do, but John is uh, sort of a royalty in both the rock and roll and podcasting world as the drummer for Superchunk and for the Mountain Goats and for the Bob Mold Band these days, uh, as well as the um, uh, more, um, well, how would we describe your work with uh, with Tom? Uh, the more... Uh, authorial uh, voice on the great uh, Sharpling and Worcester program, The Best Show. Uh, do you have any, uh, is there anything about Bob in Rock, Rot, and Rule? You know, I don't think he ever came up in the context of the, <laughs> of the Rock, Rot, and Rule call. And I'm, now I'm wondering. What, what would be the take he, there? All right. So it would have been 1997 when we did that call. So mm-hmm. um, um, would have been right when, around the time of Time Out of Mind. Is that, is that, um, um, pl- yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I think he he would have said he he rocked because it's too murky. Like he doesn't rule. <laughs> he, he he's too murky right now. And and I, and and I think like David Bowie, he he uh, he's had too many changes. Right. Also. Right. Yeah. Well, um, he is. Uh, he's certainly come a long way since then, uh, and that's what we're ostensibly here to talk about. Uh, is a 2018 show that uh, that you attended, John, in Durham, North Carolina, I think. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, just use that kind of as a uh, a jumping off point for this wide ranging conversation. We'll see where it goes. Uh, you know, who who can say what direction yeah. it might end up taking. 
Um, but uh, I think without any further ado, we'll just uh, hop right in and uh, give it a blow on the harp and be on our way. First, I want to say, I want to say, I always thought the harp was pre-recorded. I oh, didn't well, know it was well, live. So, it so was getting to see it point. live. Okay. Oh my it's, God! I saw it live. It's thrilling, we, isn't it? We used to use a um, uh, just a sound effect that is like the first <laughs> thing that comes up when you search like harmonica sound effect, and that's for the right. first like fifty episodes or something. Okay. Okay, I got it. Ever since 2021, this was actually the other part of my Christmas gift from my girlfriend. It's the Bob Dylan Signature Series Harmonica. So it was a whole podcasting Christmas for me. I love it. Um, Anyway, I just wanted to say, John, set the stage for us slightly. Uh, In this great uh, interview you did, um, which uh, we will reference a little bit, um, there's a a sort of travel history or, or a, a personal history of your your experience with Dylan shows so like where does this show uh exist in your in the time frame of your experience seeing Dylan live the, this was a- after a after a long uh period of not seeing him um to, to go back even further I I uh when I was a kid uh Around seventh grade, I, I had this teacher, and, and she had this tiny library in the back of, of her room. And one of the books was was this paperback book. I think it was called Bob Dylan and the Folk Explosion. And I I'd never heard Bob Dylan, but I thought he he must be cool. So I I read this book, and I just wanted to know all about him. But you never heard him on the radio. So so he was one of those people who I was aware of. But I, I didn't get to hear his music for a couple years. Um, so, right. You said something that I loved in, in this interview, which is that one of the maybe the second record that you had by Dylan was uh, was at Budokan. And yes. you just thought that that's what Bob Dylan sounded that's just like. That's what he sounded like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. He's got this. He's got this 30 piece band and, he, and he's got woodwinds. Um, I, I will say the love minus zero on that on that at Budokan is, is my favorite version. Oh, it's so wow. good. Yeah, I mean it yeah. is terrific, and yeah. all of the reggae uh, inflected version, the yeah. reggae <laughs> and the disco strings and stuff. It is oh, really a uh, yeah. it, it's a thrilling interpretation of Bob Dylan. Dylan is a is a is a band leader from Jamaica, and um, <laughs> yeah. he he yeah. spends a lot of time uh, playing in in Japan. Uh, um, so, all right, so. Fast forward to 1991, and I, I'm playing in a, a a roots rock band in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I grew up near Philadelphia, and I, I got my start playing in these kind of alternative rock bands that sounded kind of like the Minutemen or the Fall, that sort of stuff. Hell yeah. And, and so I ended up auditioning for this roots rock band in Winston-Salem, North Carolina that was on the rise called The Right Profile. And we Named end up getting the Clash song. Yes. Yeah. And we end up getting signed uh, to Arista Records by Clive Davis about four months after I joined. Just insane. I, I'm uh, 19 at the time. Yeah. There's this great picture of you in this. This interview is with Ray Paget, who runs this great uh, uh, Bob Dylan live substack uh, called Flagging Down the Double E's. And there's this great picture of you as like just a gawky teenager next to like crypt keeper looking Clive Davis. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a crazy world that was. Uh, so good. And, and so, so 
I, I joined the band in early 86. And by this point, like, I don't really, I'm not following Dylan much at all. I, I saw him on, uh, on Letterman with the guys from the, uh, the plugs and thought plugs. that was really cool. Cool. But I, I just didn't really follow where he was at that point. Cause we're, you know, we're getting close to knocked out loaded and, and that, that scene. And not so, the hottest thing in no, recorded music in 1986, no, 87, 88. No, no. So, but I joined this band and these guys are all still diehards. They're fans. And so, you know, the, the current Dylan stuff was just not doing it for me at all. I just didn't get it. I was, I was like, you know, I was nineteen, twenty, still into Husker do the replacements and that sort of stuff, which I still am, but, but that, that's where I was coming from. Sure. And, and um, so um, one of the guys gets, gets the biograph box set which had, had come out a few months earlier. And that's when I really got into it. Like that's when I discovered, you know, some of the deeper stuff, like the great ISIS from Montreal. And exactly. Yeah. Live Big ISIS. career spanning box set that yeah. uh, we've not even talked about on the, on the show oh, yet, yeah. but was, you know, a, a big deal for the, for the, made a lot of new fans of, of kind of, of invented and... box sets really. Yeah. 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 And, and so, so we, have our thing going we got a record deal it all kind of goes goes to shit uh, you know as as all as 99 percent of these deals do exactly so um but we got to do some great recording with steve jordan and nico bolas and and uh pete anderson and jim dickinson um so now it's 1991 and we've it's pretty much the same band minus one guy the guy that left the band oddly is this guy who's famous for a whole other thing um Stephen J Dubner who wrote the uh co-wrote the Freakonomics books and has a has a podcast called Freakonomics Jesus oh. I didn't know that yeah. at all you played yeah. it with Dylan <laughs> he, he he was in our band he, no he's he, in John's he, band oh yeah oh yeah. I see I see yeah so he he was in the right profile and then he ends up quitting to pursue a, a career in journalism boy so that's a real like uh just like podcast like royalty tree coming out yes. of the right profile <laughs> incredible <Right? laughs> yeah yeah freakonomics and, a little different uh, than the best show yeah and so um he leaves the band and, and we decided to change the name to the carnies c-a-r-n-e-y-s perfect and and so now now we're in like may of 91 i have just moved to chapel hill away from Winston-Salem, and we get this call. Would you guys want to open for Bob Dylan? Insane. And we're like, oh, my God, of course. So um, our guitar player at the time was this guy named Mark Bosch, and he has gone on to uh, great success uh, playing with Ian Hunter. Uh, he's in Mata Hoople now, um, things like that. And so he, for some reason, he can't do it. He's got this other thing happening. So we get this other guy that played with us who's great. And so we're all excited about this show. And it's it's the first show in this brand new venue called the Lawrence Joel Memorial Coliseum. I, I don't know who Lawrence Joel is. But, <laughs> but um, and it, it's just this terrible, like, concrete and tin structure like made made for minor league hockey and sure so, had great great acoustics terrible just awful <laughs> awful so um you know so we go to the show we uh, get there we set up and I, I set up in front of uh ian wallace's drums and uh so the band would be ian wallace uh john jackson tony garnier uh bucky 
and Bob. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, but, but before that, they they sound check, but uh, Bob's not there. And and so uh, uh, Caesar Diaz, who who was uh, his tech, he he sat in and, and sang and and played guitar. So that was kind of cool to see how how this band operates without the chief there. So um, <laughs> without the band leader. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so they sound check, and then we put our stuff up, and I'm right next to Bob's station with his his harmonicas and and box of Kleenex and stuff, and I'm just like, I can't believe I'm here. Like, I Incredible. can't believe this is this is happening. And so, of course, I I had to take a a Kleenex from his his box. <laughs> See, the, the I will say that the title of this uh, piece, uh, this interview where you recount this story as well is a little bit sensationalist because it implies perhaps right. that the Kleenex had been used <laughs> at a glance. It had not been used. Not just it, want to make that not. clear. Yeah. So, uh, and the Kleenex lived in my vinyl copy of Infidels for at least 20 years. And I, I'd be lying if I said I knew if I still had the album and the Kleenex. It might be my storage place, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm praying it is. Um, so my, my memory of the show is very uneventful. I, I, I don't recall much because it was just you no know, shows like that. You're you're playing to people finding their seats. Right. Right. I I did a, a whole tour with Whiskey Town back in the late '90s where we opened for John Fogarty, and I think we just played to a thousand people every night in these amphitheaters and they were all just kind of finding their seats getting hot dogs yeah so it's mm-hmm. a very unsatisfying experience although it looks great on paper <laughs> it's, um, it's good, good on the cv yeah exactly so, so um i i asked the main singer songwriter uh guy in the band jeff foster uh going into that interview i said what do you remember about that night and he said um, a, a mutual friend told him that as we were playing, he saw a, a hooded figure on the yeah. side of the stage <laughs> who was who was watching us for, you know, for a few moments. And so, as we all know, there's pretty much only one hooded figure in this world. <laughs> and and yeah. so I would love to to. Uh, know that it was him and I, I think that the, the odds are probably pretty good. Yeah, yeah. that's him. Yeah. So then he plays and it was at this weird period for him. I don't know how weird it was, but well, you know, he, he, he we was, just did a he, show about this I, very yes. period. Yeah. Yes. With, yeah. With Tim Heidegger, the 91 yeah. show in Stuttgart. Yes. So he was I, in I was full wiggle to... mode at this moment in time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he, <laughs> you know, he had been drinking and he, 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 he had the, the alcohol face, you know, he, I, this is maybe just like four months after after the lifetime achievement at the Grammys, I think. Yeah, an in- incredible moment in yes. uh, in 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 his career and and Jack yeah. Nicholson's career for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> my 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 daddy didn't say much, but uh, yeah, my daddy. He said a lot of things. <laughs> he said a lot of things. Well, um, all right. Yeah. Well, my daddy, he didn't leave me too much. You know, he's a very simple man, and uh, he didn't leave me a lot. But what he told me was this. He did say, son, he said, uh, he said so many things, you know. (laughs) 
And then uh, that quote that he says that, that uh, when he finally gets down to say something, um, I believe it was lifted from something a notable rabbi said. Right. Right. It's like a fumbled um, version of a rabbi's right, wisdom right. or something. He said, you know, it's possible to become so defiled in this world that your own mother and father will abandon you. And if that happens, God will always believe in your own ability to mend your own ways. Thank you. So he was definitely in that state of mind. Sure. Yes. And so um, opened with what I think is is the greatest version of New Morning. And it's not like the Stuttgart <laughs> legendary, one. Like he, legendary version. He he nailed it this night because they had they you know they've been opening with this thing for months. Sure. But uh but the one you were talking about with Tim is the greatest because it's just it's seven <laughs> yeah. minutes of yeah. just like Oh man, that's not the that's not the right one. No, I mean that's not the right one either. <laughs> yeah, so, trying out every harmonica, just like plunking yeah. on. Like he's doing the sound check during that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When, on that yeah. Germany show, he's just like, yeah. all right, time to time and, to test everything out. And that's that's what's that's what I love about him is that he he will do that in front of many thousand people. Just yeah, a, a high paying audience full of people yeah. expecting to see yeah. uh, you know yeah. <laughs> the the hero of the sixties. Oh man. Uh so, so um my my memories of the show were uh, a great man in a long black coat with some cool green lighting. Hell yeah. Uh, um and at some point somebody got up on stage and and dove off. And stage was, diving during a Bob Dylan show. Yes, yeah. Incredible. And I, I, I remember he had like a really good expression on his face, like he was into it. Because um, <laughs> he, he probably loved stuff like that. I, I think he loved he loved uh, what's his name, Michael Portnoy, uh, Soy Bomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I do want to say I, I I once saw that guy do stand up comedy, and someone interrupted him. They jumped up on stage dressed as Bob Dylan. No way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was going to. He deserves that. Yeah. Yeah. He absolutely. That should, you know, be what happens to him every day for the rest of his yeah. life. But no, I mean, that's a, that's good. He added a, he created a memorable moment for Bob. I'm sure he, he did. Bob Dylan knows that. And that's cool. Yeah. By him. Um, so th that, that was that show. I thought, it, I thought it was good. Um, you know, I mean, good I knew music. the songs. Yeah. I, I knew the songs wouldn't be what i i knew them as but uh so i i wasn't that shocked by by how different they were you know the right the, uh versions all right so so that's my last experience with bob dylan until um maybe 2002 saw him at an amphitheater in Cary, north carolina and right. just didn't connect with me for some reason i'm, I'm not sure why like it looked great the, the actual uh, stage and everything I, th I thought was great but and that's sort just... of like the that's sort of like the the like the legendary like like kind of peak moment of the never ending tour for a lot of people like that two thousand like post love and theft before modern times like 2001 to 2005 that seems like for a lot of folks that's like that's the time you know right right and this venue from my memory had like very strict sound level um, um yeah like well, maximum so, so, kind of yeah, yeah. So, it, so it was very quiet too i, I mm. think that, that might have played a, a part um, that always makes it you know even a great show just doesn't uh doesn't come across like going to shows at the hollywood bowl for instance like it's just, oh, yeah. it's never loud enough yeah 
Well, I, I, I got to play there once with Bob Mould and my only memory of it is people just eating in yeah. front of you. Like, yeah, like exactly. <laughs> just Bob, eating. Bob, Bob Forrest from Thelonious Monster, just like in the front row, just eating a sandwich or something. <laughs> yeah, having a $23 like uh, ham and cheese baguette. Yeah, well, the, the people who are closest to the stage, it's like the, the opposite of a normal show where it's like they're they're doing the they're reclining more and more as you get closer to the stage. So like the people in the, the little garden area and like the pool area, they're just like basically lying down, sipping wine out of a, a big sippy cup. Right. <laughs> Um, we did, my girlfriend and I did get caught up in, in, in Bob's, uh, 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 procession on the way out. We left early, like right as I think he was probably ending with either like a Rolling Stone or Watchtower, but we sure. decided we'll beat the traffic and we leave. And we, we got in his, his motorcade somehow, like we had a police escort. We were like, Whoa. uh, behind him, behind the bus. And our car just sort of somehow got in this thing. So we got to pull the escort out of it. Yeah. Um, all right. So then 2018. And um, I think the show was near enough to me. And I was, I, I developed enough of a, of a love of his whole catalog by this point to say, I'm going to see him live again. And so place holds maybe 3,000. And I just loved it. I thought it was amazing. I was a little high, so maybe that that played into it. But sure. um, I just thought it was great. A and uh, I, my memories, there was some, uh, there was one or two standards. Maybe do you have a set list for it? Yeah, I think yeah, we, we got the set list right here. Oh, but, the it ain't uh, me, babe was great. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that there were any standards on this one. Maybe not. He d he did come out and sang. Am I wrong that he had like a giant mic, like an old fashioned mic? He was doing that a lot during the, uh, yeah, like in 2018, 19, even yeah. 16, like around the time of those standards records. Cause when yeah. I saw him at some casino and it was like full on standards mode and okay. he was just standing there planted, you know, the wide, wide stance and, <laughs> yeah. um, had that big old fashioned microphone and he I would like it. sort of dance around with it, uh, like, a like, like, uh, David Byrne in the, in the lamp. Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> exactly it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just remember loving it. I, and I remember really focusing on, on George Raseel, the drummer. Cause I, I thought, um, I just thought he was, he was so great. And um, I love, I love how they all play together there. You know, he gets, he gets these great bands and you know, of course, Tony has, has, has been a presence for, for so long now. And right. I just love, just love how how they all just gel. I'm sure it takes a while for them to all kind of get in the in the groove, but they're all so good. And I found myself watching watching the band as much as I was watching him. And and so after that show, I was just like, oh my god, I got to see more. And but I, I had a lot of touring coming up, and uh, so now we're in 2019, and I, and I find this this block of shows that I can go to. Um which would have been, I think, November of 2019. It was right, in, between, right. in between like Mountain Goes and a Super Chunk tour. And uh, so I so I did a road trip. I, I, I saw him uh, in uh, Pittsburgh and uh, Baltimore and Southern Virginia. Sure. And this is, uh, Matt Chamberlain is in the band at, at this point. 
on, on drums. On drums. And um, and it was it was great. It was each show was in like a a, a like a secondary college gymnasium. So they were like these these small arenas. Damn. Yeah, and um, same set every night. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and but it 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 didn't matter. Um. And I I got to my seats were in all different places too, so I I got to see it from from different angles. And at one point I snuck up in in this area off to the left side of the stage where I could just kind of have a bird's eye view of everything. And it was so cool just to see, just to see how they all kind of interact and watching Bob's hands at the piano. And it was just, it was just such a cool experience. And I, I just felt like I, I need to see as many of these shows before, you know, before, before, yeah, before there, yeah, and who knows when we'll get before the uh, pandemic, and uh, then we couldn't see anymore. That's what you're <laughs> yeah. gonna say, right? Yeah. Well, hopefully he'll be uh, back on the road before too long. You know, I heard, I heard through some, someone told me that uh, Bob Dylan was seen riding his motorcycle through, uh, through the Wisconsin, Midwest. I think, right? So, I feel like this is a good sign. Our man is in good health, and uh, he's back he's, on the road. He's on the road, so I, I'm I'm hopeful. I yeah, think. and the paper the pay per view was great. I thought. Oh yeah, yeah the uh, Shadow Kingdom. Terrific. Yeah, very different, uh, very different kind of thing than uh, Never Ending Tour, but I think just as just you know, it, 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 if you if he had gotten up there and just played a Never Ending Tour set, you know, that wouldn't have been fun, and it would have been weird to yeah. like watch it through a computer and stuff. Anyways, I think that uh, the more I think about it, like that's what he ended up doing with that was like exactly what he needed to do. Or yeah, I, oh, yeah. I've been, I've been reflecting a little bit more on shadow kingdom. I think it's a great idea that the choice to make it more pared down and actually more intimate, smaller, no drums works better for TV for something right, like yes. that, because you, you can't, uh, it, it, it's less, um, you're not sitting there feeling like, Oh, well this isn't as good as the real thing it becomes its own thing that you can kind of, it makes you lean into it and sort of hear a smaller thing versus like right. just watching a recording of a live show that you can't really capture. But um, speaking of capturing a live show, if I, I don't know if we want to go through every single track on, on the 2018 bootleg that we have here, but there are definitely some standouts that I think I, I definitely want to touch on. And, yeah. um, versions that are are pretty spectacular i honestly don't remember a a lot of <laughs> about the versions but i i do remember it ain't, it ain't me babe was was really cool the take of of that yeah the version of uh it ain't me babe there it's like the second song on the set list it's it's a great um you know kind of piano driven version very soft and gentle yeah. uh and one that i think always uh always kind of comes back and makes itself vital again even when you know the the context in which he's singing this song is so divorced from the original time in which he was writing it you know um it it uh still sticks with him throughout time it ain't me babe is a song that it it took me a long time to really appreciate i I, i'm ashamed to say like i for a long time i thought i was i was a little bored by it and i just um i didn't really I guess I never put the pieces together that like, 
of course this is like one of his favorite songs to perform because the whole attitude of it is so perfectly Bob Dylan. It's like uh, all the lyrics about are, it's just like an anti-romantic song in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. That also is like, you know, I'm too cool. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I can't be um, lame for you. I, I have to be cool. It's just you can't um, you can't change me. Um, it would be unfair for me to pretend not to be way cooler than you. <laughs> and then you you can sort of see him turning turning over his shoulder to to Bob Newworth and saying, "Isn't that right, Bob?" <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but this, uh. yeah, this version has. I believe he does that thing. Uh, when he goes up really high, when he sings, um, yes. it ain't me, babe. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think over the years he has learned to to do those things because of whatever vocal limitations you've got, and everybody has that after a while. Everyone right. you just have to have have to adjust to whatever your age if you're if you're kind of sick that day and so he's he's the master at that at, at that sort of thing where like yeah I, I suppose that is like the most logical explanation but it, he does it in such a way and when it works really well it feels like I, I mean to me i i really feel like it's like listening to to like a, a really great jazz uh impro improviser like somebody who just knows exactly how to like twist and reshape a, a classic song like in into their own new thing it's like listening to like oh. coltrane do do a ver like a, a standard you know oh totally yeah i think i don't think he does a song at this point if he's not feeling it and i think for him to feel it at this point it's it has to be fresh with him and so that's why you get all these all these wild arrangements and these 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 wild takes of, of these songs. Right. Otherwise he wouldn't, he wouldn't do them. I mean, are, are, are there any songs that he does in the original format at this point? That's a good question. I mean, like the, the newer stuff that he does, you know, the, I think the, like the, the later in time it gets, the closer to the present, like the more faithful, Right, the songs right. are to the original versions um, because I guess, I don't know, he's he's more familiar with it with the band and like, you know, the NeverEnding Band, for instance, has been in the studio with him for all this shit since 2001 versus, you know, some of these guys probably weren't even born when he was recording It Ain't Me, Babe. Right. Um, so, you know, those songs, like newer songs were kind of, you know, quote unquote, developed or whatever, created alongside the people he's playing with versus the older stuff. You know, he kind of has to like create ground up fresh once again you know um i'm listening back to this version and, and it's actually a little bit straighter than i remember i think i was thinking of rolling stone or one of the other ones on here where he does that high up thing but if we're talking about songs where he does get, play it pretty straight actually this ver this ain't it ain't me babe is pretty down the middle mm. it, what he does do on this is a lot of interesting uh, piano. There's a lot of room for him to play on the piano, right? And he does those kind of like, uh, like sloppy, like jazzy things, <laughs> or like whatever. Not even jazz. It's like uh, Bob Dylan jazz, you know? <laughs> right. But it's very moody. It's it's a really great version. Yeah. This is. Uh, I I realized actually this like I. 
I saw him at the Beacon this year in 2018, um, November 26th, I think, and I was looking at the set list. I thought it was, it was you were there in 2019. No, 2018. Oh, okay. I wish I was there in 2019. Um, that would have been like one of his last shows. Um, but he, I, like this, this set list, I think, was virtually identical to the one that I saw um, when he played at the Beacon. There were like one or two tracks that were kind of off. Um, but like for 80, 90% of it, this was the exact thing that I saw. And it feels so funny, like coming back to it now with this much uh, broader and deeper understanding of what was going on. Cause I remember that like even that night, I, you know, I fucking went to see him just two, three years ago, um, and spent however many hundreds of dollars to get tickets to the beacon in New York. Um, uh, you know, I thought I knew my stuff. I thought I was going to be like, all right, I, I'm, I, I kind of am with it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to, to get down with this, even though I know he's going to be, you know, totally fucking with versions of stuff. And I still wasn't able to pick up on like half the stuff that he was playing. Um, wow. I remember Simple Twist of Fate was like, a, was one of the first songs. And that one was the first one where I was like, oh, I see what he's doing now. You know, th- I, I caught a couple glimpses of the lyrics on this, but like for a lot of the rest of the set, it was completely just kind of out there and I still loved it. Um, but it was, uh, it was kind of mystifying, but coming back to it now, like all this stuff just sounds so like, of course, these are the songs like this. It's, I don't know. It's, it's, you'd be a lot better at it now. You, you could, I think we, we could, uh, that was one of the joys of listening to this bootleg again. It's just like realizing I've, uh. I've trained for this, you know, I've yes, gotten, exactly. <laughs> my mind is, is stronger. I'm able We've to pick up on the, the material. There's only a few moments where I actually was kind of stumped. Um, like I, I, I don't know exactly which ones on here were like, but there's a couple that I was like, okay, if I was there and I didn't have the title in front of me, I think right. I would have been completely baffled. I think honest with me is one on here. Is that right. either honest with me or cry while I was just like, Okay, this would be tough. Yeah, the cry while is is. Really is it the cry while? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. John, you you mentioned obviously you are a uh, you are a, a drummer uh, uh, par excellence. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know being interested in a couple of the different never-ending uh, tour drummers. You know, Bob cycled through you know four, five, six of them over the yeah. years. Uh, but there are a couple like kind of key ones. George obviously is kind of the guy for the most part. Just what are your uh, what are your thoughts? What are your takes on on any of them? Well, it's interesting. Um... You know, when the tour started, what would that have been, like 89 or something? Is that right? Yeah, With exactly. And, uh, uh, Chris Parker was the drummer. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was – it's funny. I, I, I went back and watched some of those early shows, and it's, like, really rocking. You know, right, like, it's, right. it's pretty rocking. And uh, so it's interesting to see how that band t- t- shapeshifts over sure. – over the years and so you, know, you start kind of really rocking like that and i and uh you know they would they would do these like powerhouse versions of sweet marie and subterranean and, and um and then you know as he gets older it gets very floaty like it yes gets very... that's the word i think <laughs> yeah yeah and and it's you know there's that murk in it which is so cool and um 
and who knows if that's a direction from him or that or that that's just just how it ends up that's that's the beautiful thing about just playing with different people is that you you go in with this idea of what it's going to be like but everyone brings their own flavor to it and sure. their own their own dna and it ends up as something completely different yeah right. and dr- um, drummers especially you know the, the, there's like the old adage that like a band is only as good as their drummer which um, right you know maybe true but uh it's why <laughs> you, you know you say as a drummer yourself evan i'm not a very good drummer but uh you know some people might say that mo tucker isn't a very good drummer uh you know but i think oh, that shit is way better than the later velvet stuff so like All right. it, the the point is that you know you don't have to be technically proficient necessarily but you a great drummer is one that I think brings like a certain flavor, makes a choice, you know. Yeah, and absolutely. Meg yeah. White in the White Stripes, I think, is the perfect oh, yeah. example of this. Not a technically, you know, she's not fucking, um, uh, you know, Rush or something, but like absolutely essential to like the sound and vibe of the White Stripes, at least the early right. couple records. Yeah, and it's funny. I, I was going through this book to to make a list of all the all the drummers he's played with, like right. ever, and the one that stands out as being. The one where I hear it and I immediately know it's him is uh, is Howie Wyatt from um, the Rolling Thunder era era and uh, Desire. Sure. Just like his his touch is very unique and and his drums, his drums like technically kind of sound bad <laughs> because like um, the drum heads are super old, like they're super old, and if you you get glimpses of it in the, in the Rolling Thunder documentary. There's right. masking masking tape on them, kind of holding them together and stuff. And but but that's that's the sound. And he he's the one where I I hear it. Oh, that's that's Howie. Right. Whereas the others, it, it kind, of, kind of takes a while. So he's a great example of just he has his own thing. And and to me, that's the that's the sound of those two years. Sure. There's a a real texture to the to those. Uh, to that band yeah. and, and largely in part due to him. I mean, it's like him and, and Scarlett Rivera are mm-hmm. kind of like, yeah, that's, the, violent. Exactly. that's the, the Rolling Thunder sound. I've been enjoying listening to, uh, I've been doing some more deep dive on like the bootleg series 13, the, um, uh, all the Christian stuff. There's like an eight disc set that they have on iTunes and Spotify now with like, you know, just hours and hours of shit. And there's a couple live shows. Oh, J- Jim Keltner. Exactly. On yeah, Jim Keltner's on the drums for, and he's just, he absolutely is kicking ass, just like oh, completely great. reworking these sounds or these, yeah. these songs live and giving them so much more kind of like energy and, and like oomph than they have on the studio recordings. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. He, he throws in these wild drum fills that shouldn't make sense, but the, but they do, and, right? And and they're great. Um, uh, the Mountain Goats. We did a, a record um, that just came out a couple of months ago. Um, we did it right as the world was closing, so we got it. We got it done in <laughs> perfect Mar- perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> March of, of twenty twenty, we stopped, and um, um, we did it in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and Spooner Oldham played on a few songs with oh, us. Oh, you did it and in Muscle Shoals? Yeah, yeah. Damn. Wow. And it was, um, it wasn't in, uh, it was at Fame Studios, which is where all the Etta James stuff and the all that great soul stuff was done. Sure. It, it, it wasn't where Slow Train or, or Saved was done. Okay. Um, I did get to visit that later, which was which was very cool to to be there. Um, but uh, so it, it would have been, it, it's funny, it was almost to the, to the week or something when 
they recorded saved wow down there and uh so I, serendipity I, I, yeah yeah could so you I feel it in the air <laughs> could yeah 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 you really could it's it's such a interesting place there's not much going on there but the you know the history of it is so heavy and in the air so just just to be in his presence was 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 super cool and you know he, he played all those shows too and uh He's, he, he's a very humble, soft-spoken man, but if you couldn't help but soak up his his vibe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, throughout the rest of the uh, Neverending Band, um, you know, a couple other highlights. I know we've talked about him before, and I think you also have some knowledge about him or some appreciation. Winston Watson. Um, Win- yeah. yeah. <laughs> Winston Watson has the greatest entree story to the bob dylan world yes um, it's it's like a true like a, a star is born type of thing yeah. it's, i may not be recalling this or i might be out of the loop someone needs to fill me in on this well he he ha- he has a great dvd that that he put out somewhere kind of might have been like very early 2000s i, I saw this and, and on tv once yeah uh, it's yeah. really good and, yeah. and he, he's he's he he's really cool he, he's a sweet guy and basically he he gets a call from uh, from Charlie Quintana, who was who was playing drums with Dylan. So this mm-hmm. is this is uh, around I think May of uh, of ninety two I think. So mm-hmm. yeah, like a, a year after I played that show with him. Sure. And uh, and so at, at this point, there's two drummers. There's there's Charlie Quintana and Ian Wallace. And apparently Ian's not into it having two, and and Charlie's not not into it either. <laughs> And, and um, it's so funny, so, Bob, having two drummers on stage, yeah. like a fucking heavy metal band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, at one point, Charlie calls his friend Winston Watson, who is, I, I think, lives in Tucson, Arizona at this point. And uh, as far as I know, like he wasn't a, a big fan. Like he, he was in these kind of like almost new romantic bands in the 80s in uh Arizona. Sure. And so, so he, he gets a call from Charlie's and he goes, Hey, can you be in Kansas city tomorrow? And Eddie, Eddie goes, um, why? He goes, well, you know, I, I'm on tour with Bob Dylan and you know, would love you to come out. And he thinks he's going to be a tech, like a drum tech. And, and so he, he flies out there and gets to the hotel. No one knows who he is. There's no, there's been like no word about him coming in. And he, but he sees the tour bus and he eventually finds, I think the lighting director or something. And, and he goes, oh yeah. Yeah. Someone said someone was coming in. Yeah. All right. Get on the bus. So he gets on the bus and, and they, they caravan out to this big park. It was a big, a, a, a big outdoor festival show. Mm-hmm. And he finds out he's playing that night. He's Ian Wallace be on stage behind Bob yeah. Dylan. Yeah. Maybe Ian's gone by this point, and it's Charlie and and Winston. And there there is video of this I've I've seen on YouTube. And, and um, so he has to go on stage. And and my memory of this is he says, and I had no like cool clothes. I was wearing board <laughs> board shorts and a Bart Simpson's t-shirt. <laughs> and so so he goes out, and he also said like they had me on like a child's drum kit, like it was a beginner's kit. So this is all like like a, almost to fuck with him or like trial by fire. Incredible. And so he, so he would just play along with either Ch- Charlie or Ian, whoever the drummer was that stayed, 
and just kind of like, you know, see what was going on. He had no idea what the songs were. And if it was a song title, he knew it wasn't anything close to the title or <laughs> uh, the version that, that he knew. So, but uh, on the way off stage, Bob goes, Hey man, I like how you play. And that was, he was in from there. And that was it. Isn't that wild? Man. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, I mean, the, how long do they keep the two drummer thing? It wasn't there more than a couple weeks, maybe. Right? Yeah, okay. I think it was a yeah, like a, a is there season not, of the tour, if that. There's wow. not two drummers at Woodstock '94, are there? No, no, it's just no. it's that's when just Lawson just there Winston. On, yeah, um, you know, yeah. So, there's some great two drummer uh, moments in in music history. I I I really like whenever the Fall has has had two drummers. There's like that yeah. great um, video of them playing. Uh, the song Tempo House, which is a live video at the Hacienda, and that actually is the one, the version that is on the record. And that's that's some great two-drummer drumming. Oh, um, yeah. And, uh, of course, the Grateful Dead had a, has had two drummers at various points. Um, it is very funny to imagine Bob Dylan having two drummers. With two drummers. Have you ever done any dual drumming, John? I don't. Oh, I, I played on on a record by a guy who who uh, was in a band called the Connells here in North Carolina, and okay. uh, he made a solo record, and I, I did do that. Uh, it, it's interesting. It, it's fun. And um, do you try to match like the exact kind of like beats and and everything with the other drummer, or are you each doing your own thing? You try to do something that's a little different. Like one guy will play more of of the groove, and the other guy will kind of like sprinkle. Sure. And. Um, I could be completely wrong about this, but I, I um, have a memory of, of having a brief email exchange with this guy, Bruce Gary, who is one of my favorite drummers. And he, he, uh, he was the drummer in The Knack. Oh, wow. And he, he played br- briefly with Dylan. And he said he, he played on, a, on an early version of, of, uh, of Joker Man. Whoa. So... And I, I think at some point he was doing double drumming, maybe with Kelder. It probably wasn't for a long period of time. It, it, it might have been, it might have been, um, I feel like maybe the first tour where there, there was some, some of the secular songs were coming back in. Like, right, like, like 81. Maybe they, yeah, maybe they rehearsed for it then or something, and it, sure. it, it just did, it didn't happen. But uh, I feel like it was around that area. I, I don't know if Joker Man dates back that far, but it probably doesn't. Joker Man before history began was a song. Was, yeah, pre. So it's always existed. It's always existed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm I'm just like googling Winston Watson stuff right now in the background, and I'm seeing there's something here in this documentary which I haven't watched, but apparently I need to. Um, uh, Winston Watson tells a story about how Van Morrison told Bob oh, that his yeah. drummer was no good and needed to be replaced right in front of him and loud enough for him to hear it. So, uh, it doesn't sound like something Van Morrison would do, does it? <laughs> this 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 podcast has a complicated history with Van Morrison. I think <laughs> I lo- I think Van I love has him, a complicated but, uh, history with Van. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. The, the right way of putting it. I like to uh, you know observe. I like to listen, and I like to not be, uh, have him ever be close enough to be mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Apparently, uh, Watson went on to play with uh, with Zevon at one point too. This fucking man, he's really he's like uh, he's been all over the place. He is. I, I only met him once. I, I was playing in a band that opened for uh, Chuck Prophet, uh, and, and he was the drummer with Chuck. 
Hell yeah. Yeah, he, he was great. Um, all right, speaking of drummers, Bob Dylan has played with a drummer who has maybe the greatest drummer name of all time. And he, I, 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 I labored under the impression that he was on one of my favorites, which is one of the most loathed Bob Dylan songs of all time, Had a Dream About You, Baby. Ooh. Had a Dream. <laughs> that's, that's the that's most tough, loathed yeah. Bob Dylan song <laughs> of all time. I, for some reason, I worked at a record store when Down in the Groove came out, and I was just, I just, I wanted him to rock a little bit. And, and, and that was the one. He's, and, uh, he is rocking uh, in, yeah. in, in some sense of the word on that record. Yeah. Um, great or here, record. Here's a great factoid about Had a Dream About You, Baby. It, the players on it are Eric Clapton. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Ronnie Wood, Kip no Winger. Yes. Um, Mitchell Froom, who uh, who was a producer guy, and uh, on keyboards, Bo Hill, who's the guy that produced all the Rat records. Rat, like R A T T Rat. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that insane. <laughs> Jesus Christ. See, this is – there's some of this on uh, on Under the Red Sky too. Like he's just got like an absolute like murderer's row of musicians on that. George Harrison is on that. Elton John is on that. Bruce Slash. Hornsby is on that. Um, I think um, Ringo Slash. is on one of those songs. Slash is exactly it, – it, and it's just a complete fucking mess and a half. I, th I think that explains a lot about what was going on there in uh, 86 to 1990, 1991 or so. He needed the, like, <laughs> the, uh, the harsh disciplinarian influence of Daniel Lanois. It's to, so funny. Uh, it's like settle the, him down. the logic just being like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy some of the most expensive wines money can buy, and then I'm going to mix them together <laughs> in, in a bucket. <laughs> oh, so getting back to the drummer with the great name. He, he's on Knocked Out Loaded. Raymond Lee Pounds. Raymond, Raymond Lee, Lee Pounds. Pounds. I just think that's the best. Oh, he almost certainly got the job because of his name. Like so, on probably. Theme Time Radio, Dylan is always pointing out like when somebody has a great name for a musician, and oh, yeah. uh, so I I have to imagine that's 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 probably a factor Pounds, in a lot of the Pounds is a pretty good name for uh, for a drummer. I guess he he might have been set set on that path from a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy! Um, what other uh, highlights? Let's just—I want to scroll through this uh, set list one more time. I—I want to point out that there's a, a, an amazing like Rolling Stone on here, yes, which has just this like really, um, like very inventive uh, structure to it, where uh, it'll just complete like going back to the word floaty, like it actually the song dissolves. And then it's just Dylan on the piano and everything slows down. And um, then he, like for the part where it's, uh, you know, like, as you stare into the vacuum of his eyes and say, do you want to make a deal? And then it'll just be this kind of rhapsodic piano, uh, circular piano uh, noodling. And then. How does it feel? And the band kicks back in, and then they come back, and it, yeah. it it's so cool. Like it's it's such a great version. Yeah, I think you mentioned or, uh, earlier, John, like you know it, whether he was in um, crooner mode in this uh, set, and whether or not he actually played any of the you know kind of standards um, during the set. I I think he he's he definitely reinterpreted a lot of the old classics as if they were kind of standards. 
Um, right. And Rolling Stone is a perfect uh, a perfect example of that. It's so it's so funny how we can still find a way to fucking completely reinvent that. Well, you said something in, in, in that interview as well that was just that you get the impression watching these later period Dylan shows um, that the, he has finally become like what he always wanted to be. Like he exactly. he has completely uh, full, like fully formed. And I think that that, you know, when we, we've said, you know, that we believe Dylan is like at his very best now. And I, I think that that's actually like completely true. We were saying... I said something sort of like it seemed facetious on Twitter. Like this, there's never been a better time to be a Bob Dylan fan. But uh, and some people were like, "What? What about the '60s?" And I just said to them, like, "Oh, a time when there were seven Bob Dylan albums. Like, you <laughs> right. think that's better than what we have now?" Where and as far as the music, he can pull from any period. He could play "Had a Dream About You, Baby" and make it into like a heart rending uh, yeah. soul. soul bearing type of performance if he brought had a dream about you baby back for the next live set i would absolutely lose my shit right and uh there's so many moments like that on this uh 2018 show that like will just blow you away there's one incredible version of um gotta serve somebody yeah the gotta serve somebody really which is is just hot 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 fire sound it's it's like a scorching uh arrangement and it has one of my favorite lyrical changes or like lyrical additions i've heard in recent memory which is uh they might call you peter they might call you paul they might not call you anything at all but you've got (laughs) you got to serve somebody a lyric change that like on the surface seems kind of silly but i was thinking about it and i was just like that is actually a profound uh implication that uh, you might be like a it's like it's like the tree of life, like the Terrence Malick movie. Like you might be like a, a nonverbal dinosaur, and you'll still have to choose between good and evil. Like you could, right. you <laughs> might not have a name. You know, it's it's really wild. Um, I don't know if Bob was necessarily thinking about the uh, metaphysical uh, as- aspect of that, but I'm sure he was. Yeah, and you wonder if if like how far in advance he's thinking of these changes right you know like there's there's a, there's a story of, of of him rewriting tangled up in blue uh in a hotel room on the uh i guess that ended up on real live but right. um mm. but like Le- legendary live document real live yeah, yeah. radio I, blast I do love in the that news version. that yeah. that's the, radio blast ver- the news exactly yeah. yeah it's a great version that's maybe the only good thing from real life. You know, right. actually, there's the "It Ain't Me, Babe." On it ain't that me, babe. Yeah, is good. is the one that taught me to love the song. Actually, oh, I, well. I think. Oh, speaking of great live versions, and and Winston Watson, uh, there's this version of "Pretty Peggyo" from uh, it's Binghamton, New York, New York. It, it, it's it's on YouTube. Just phenomenal. Wow. And it's uh, oh, it's so good. Uh, John Jackson's guitar playing is so good. And I think I found like a version from the next night or a couple nights later, not the same. Like it's just had this incredible magic. And that's what's so great about him is that you might just get that magic once. Like, like that tonight I'll be staying here with you on, uh, uh, from Montreal also. I think that's the greatest live version of any song ever. Wow. And it, and it's, 
he probably didn't play like that ever again or before. Just that right. one night was just phenomenal. Right. Well, th and that's similar to like uh, the when we were doing the Stuttgart show, Evan. You found that other version, like that other recording from just like two, three nights yeah, after uh, that set. And just and like you were saying, John, about that that same uh, version of <laughs> that that version of New Morning that Dylan just really wanted it to be that way for like a yeah. year or six months. <laughs> yeah. There are other like every other time, but the Stuttgart one. You hear it kind of work better, you know, it, it the, yeah. and there's even within that, like there's still moments that, that you, you always get like a, a reshuffling of the deck. Like sometimes a lyric will kind of be flubbed or, or weird in, in a way that doesn't like work. Um, but it sounds amazing. And sometimes it's the other way around and every once in a while, like everything comes together and it's right, just right. perfect. And I think yeah. Dylan wouldn't wouldn't have it any other way. It just seems to be the way he likes to do things. Is that risk is built into everything he does? Yes, it, it's all risk. Uh, uh, that guy Ray Ray Paget, uh, who we we're talking about, um, he he did a great interview with with Jim Keltner recently, and Keltner was saying it's all about risk with him. It's about taking chances. Don't play the same part twice, and. There's no way Bob Dylan is obsessing over a fuck up. No, no. You know, like even yeah. a minute ago, you know, <laughs> he's just moving forward. And that's, that's, I mean, that, that's what you need to be doing. If you're going to be a great artist, you that's the, that's really... the most inspiring thing about him. I think Yeah, is, is like you, you look at enough of his work and like you were just saying, yeah, I mean, you, you can't, be a great artist if you let yourself if you get in your he's the king of not getting in his own way when it comes to just right. moving it forward let's just keep going let's like yeah it doesn't matter what just happened it's about what's next and we're yeah. just gonna roll through this that's what makes me wonder how much input does he have in in the bootleg series like i can't i mean like him him presented with like a hundred tracks. No, man, I, I, I don't yeah, want It's to. like a million dollar question. I, 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 at this point, I kind of believe that it's got to be a, a group of people who he, for yeah. whatever reason, has come to trust. You guys deal with it. And yeah, he knows that they will do the hard work of being like yeah. nerds about his stuff. He, I don't, I can't see him sitting down and thinking that, thinking that stuff no. through. He's not listening to that stuff. Yeah, I've uh, I when like the whole uh, springtime in New York stuff was kind of like in the process of being announced. There was that weird like rollout of it, you know, where they put the YouTube video up and then took it down and then put it back up again. I was looking at like just like you know the 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 deepest kind of message board kind of shit, you know, kind of like the absolute freaks, like you know, ten times <laughs> ten times freakier than any of us. Um, and it seems like uh, their understanding of it at least is that this guy Jeff Rosen. Uh, yeah. who's Bob's manager, kind of consigliere type, uh, and has been over the last 20, 30 years, is kind of the driving um, force behind a lot of the bootleg series releases. Uh, and he's the guy who ultimately makes the call, like, this goes on there, this doesn't, right. this is what we're doing next, uh, and so on. Um, but yeah, I guess Bob has just delegated everything to him at this point. I mean, he's like 80 years old. Like what does, what does he fucking care at this point? He you know, he, at, at 30, he didn't care when he ago, was 20. I, I don't think no, like, he would have, yeah, yeah. he wouldn't have had all the he cared about back then was like, all right, this, this goes on the record. This doesn't, but now 
everything that wasn't on the records in the first place. Now it's just like, you know, we, we've, we've been peeking behind the curtain this much for this long. You know, might as well sh- give, give everyone a, a complete glimpse from here on out. Yeah. Oh, I want, yeah. Wanted, wanted to ask you, what do you think of Tempest? that record because there's funny. a lot of, there's a lot on the on this uh show there's there like a lot four of tempest on this five show. maybe i i was listening to it yesterday because i i want to refresh my memory of it and um I'm pulling it up right now oh duquesne whistle i think is amazing i Duquesne love whistle yeah. you got on on this one 2018 show there's early roman kings there's soon after midnight pay and blood scarlet is scarlet town on there? scarlet town Wow. Yeah, you played half the record here. Yeah, wow, a lot yeah. of stuff. It's a good record. I think it sounds great. We got to talk about Mississippi, though. I, I was oh, amazed yes. that <laughs> it was your number one. It's my number one of the same era. I think. We Hell just yeah. released our, uh, our a final uh, list. Not, well, final. Our, our A final list of uh, our Jokerman favorites, uh, our Jokerman 100, and Mississippi a dear listener was our number one. Take and the cake. So, John, I, I'm I'm happy to hear that. I, I think we got a similar response from a lot of people who were like, you know, you know what? It's I can't be mad. Was kind of the general consensus. Yeah, yeah. It's it's such a magical track to like. He didn't play it like that again. You know, it's it just that's that that was the magic take, and it just sounds so good too. And it's got it's got. You know he he's he he's never really credited for like his pop hooks, and and there's really good ascending and descending kind of, you know, uh, pop hooks in that. Exactly. It almost sounds like the kind of like if you subtracted the vocal and all the lyrics, which is all pure Bob. Like the music itself could be just like a like FM nineties like yeah, like, yeah know, like a female like country vocalist or something yeah. sort of thing. Totally, I can um, I can imagine like Carrie Underwood going hey every step of the way or something <laughs> like that. Right. Uh, it's uh, it's magic. It's great, and and I think like part of the the success on that also is like Love and Theft is really when he got back to like cutting the songs like the record cuts of the songs the way that he did it in the 60s like the way that he just like wrestled up the band went into the studio and then cut you know this song this song this song this song in the span of four hours uh and right. those were all the takes and they just went on the record that was that was so clearly like um important to the finished product uh, obviously right. i think the lack of that approach during the 80s uh, and, uh, you know, uh, some parts during the 90s also speaks, you know, it, it, you can see that in what, what ended up coming out of him. And then and then when he comes back to that approach with Love and Theft, um, it's just such an immediate kind of um, uh, sea change, uh, like a, just a complete refreshing of what happens. And so you're exactly right, John. Like that is that just happened to be the magic take of Mississippi, just like there's the magic take of uh, of Rolling Stone, just like there's the magic take of uh, stuck inside a mobile, you know, and it's the yep. one on the record and, and it has to be that take like that. That is the canonic, like perfect take always will be. Yep. Yeah. It's one of the things that we uh, noticed after posting our top 100, like the final, you know, sector of that was there was a lot of weird takes coming out of the woodwork, like that the version of Mississippi on uh, the bootleg series um, yeah. is better. And I I was floored by seeing people. I saw like four people be like, it's better. And I don't no. know about that. 
That's it's like so clearly working toward this this grand finale, yeah. this real yep. fulfillment of the song. I just remembered, by the way, that uh, in fact, uh, Dylan was not the first to record Mississippi because it was originally Cheryl Crow who Cheryl put it Crow. out. Right, right, exactly. And so yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it sounds like it could be a Cheryl Crow yeah, song. It exactly. was Cheryl Crow. Song. I was saying like female country vocal. Yeah, I was like, there it is. There's that version. Ah, oh, right. great song. You got any uh, any deep cut favorites that uh, that get overlooked, John? I love uh, I love Spanish Harlem Incident. Okay. Um, and I love I love the Birds version too. That I just think that's a phenomenal version, even though there's very two of the very different horrific- version than the yeah, another side yeah, version. Yeah. Chris Hillman playing two of the most horrific bass wrong notes of all time, but <laughs> but they left it in and it sounds great. Um, what else? Uh, you said you loved Watered Down Love. I do. Uh, just yes. to get back to uh, the, your comment about Dylan's under uh, uh, underrated pop hook uh, ability, I love that Watered Down Love is like nothing but that. <laughs> There's like no <laughs> song there. It's just a hook. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it's so great. I I love it, and I I always try to get a band I'm playing in to cover it and no, nobody ever wants to do it. Yeah, you, you don't, don't think, want, uh, you don't I think love Bob Mold would pure. do a good watered down love? I, I don't think so. I, 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 no, no. Um, um, all right. Um, I genuinely like the Queen Jane on Dylan and the Dead. Well, I, th- that's a good one. I, I, Dylan and the Dead is not a good one, but that particular song yeah. I think is is actually like, it's proof that there is something there or there could have been something there. You know, there, I think we got to do another episode at some point on Dylan and the dead as it, as it existed and not as it was represented on that, on that record, record because you could, you can, and people have compiled better uh, records of that period. And, and there within, you know, there might be, I don't know that there was ever even one full great Dylan and the dead show, but there were definitely moments in every show they played that were great that you right. could compile. Like right. there's some really actually shining moments where the promise of that actually broke through into something yeah. good. Yeah. Great, great Jerry Garcia solo on that. And I'm, I'm not close to being a dead fan, but um, I, th- I think he really plays well on this. Um, I do have some dignity Intel for you guys. Oh, oh boy, please. All right. So I, I was messaging with with uh, Steve Gorman last night, who was the dr- drummer for the Black Crows, and he is the drummer on on Dignity. And wow. uh, so I was asking him, you know, how, how it came about. And um, so uh, uh, Brendan O'Brien was, I guess, producing the Black Crows, and he he was involved in the, the Unplugged era. And, right. and uh, I think he plays keyboards on Unplugged. And so I guess they needed a song for this, you know, greatest hits three. And um, so it's, it's interesting. I was under the impression that what he was playing along to was, was uh, just Bob at the piano and and the vocal. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the wiki for the song says that the, the, the version we know of as as dignity from greatest hits three all they all they kept was the vocal, so I'm not sure if if someone else ended up pl- playing the keeper take of the of the keyboard afterwards or not. But okay. anyway, so so he said, I just played along with Bob's 
piano and vocal. And I think I assumed maybe they engineered a, a click track to go with it that kept it all in time. They said there wasn't, which is really impressive because it's really hard to just play along with someone just go, going by their, you know, everyone has their Id idiosyncrasies in terms of like they speed up a little bit, they slow down. Bob apparently Bob, has a great, it, well, great time. Really? From, from what Winston Watson said, he said, like he has incredible time. Like he's I guess really... he, you must have to have good time to know exactly when you can stretch and pull those lyrics yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So, so, um, but they did not have, have that going on, on dignity. Like it, it was, it was like a, a fairly loose take <laughs> apparently. And so he had to, had to kind of speed up and slow down and know, know when to, to do that. And, and he said in his memory, it's a complete take. Like, the, like it wasn't like, let's grab this section that's right. Let's grab this section where it speeds up a little bit or slows down and, and put it all together. He said it was one one take, which is really impressive and wow. shows what what a great drummer he is to just kind of memorize. All right, it speeds up a little bit here, slows down a little bit here, and it sounds really seamless to to my ears. And and it's a pretty hard pattern. It's 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 a song I play along to a lot uh, because it's it's kind of hard, like it's deceptively hard, and um um. It's just very impressive that that he was able to do it in one take with all those little fluctuations going. Yeah, that's wild. I didn't even realize that, like, I guess I never just thought about when that Greatest Hits Volume 3 version of Dignity was recorded. And I guess it makes sense now that it was sort of Frankensteined together mm -hmm. like this because it wasn't, I mean, there are those Oh Mercy cuts of it. And there's right. obviously the the uh, MTV Unplugged version of it also. Um, but the that Greatest Hits version doesn't really sound like either of those. And so, no. yeah, man, that's wild. It's so funny the, the way that the, some of the Greatest Hits work where it's like, it's called the Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, but there's always some kind of like weird shit on there. Like there's, right. that's how uh, when I paint my masterpiece, like I think people even know that song is because mm -hmm. it's on there and it's not on right. anything else. And it is not a greatest hit, but it became a greatest hit just by calling it one. Right. I like well, that's that. how those greatest hits records used to work is like, you know, you would collect 80% of like a, you know, a, a good chunk of stuff and then and you add toss some... on a couple singles, some of which would be good and some of which would not be good. But if you snuck them in along the rest <laughs> of these actual greatest hits, then you they know could what? actually fly. I, I would love if Bob Dylan did another greatest hits album uh, of Dylan's stuff. Greatest hits volume four. Yeah. Yeah. Of just like st stuff from the last 20 years. Plus yeah. like there's, a couple there's a flaw of... in my flu. Yeah. Yeah. You got <laughs> Um, there's, um, uh, what was I going to say? No, I don't remember. Perfect. Never mind. Great, great radio. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I think, uh, I think we, that, uh, that probably does it. You got any, uh, last, uh, last, uh, takes or Intel for us here, John? I have a funny story. Please. Let's so, this out. Uh, I think it's a good way to end. Um, a friend of mine played played in in a band that opened for Dylan. I think probably in the late eighties. Okay. And this band ended up um, their drummer got sick, and so he had to go home. And they finished the last couple shows acoustic. And so they're um, they had, as far as I remember, they had no contact with him at this point. A and um, so they they get done the first show without the drummer and and they're walking to the 
dressing room and they hear a voice coming from, from Bob's dressing room. Oh, that was great. That was really great. And so they kind of stop in their tracks and they're like, oh, I think that was him. And so they, um, they, they, they go back and he's, he's kind of like peeking his head <laughs> out, out the door. Like so like from, like from the torso up, up maybe. And he goes, man, that, that was really good. And they said, yeah, our drummer got sick. And so we have to do it like this. And he goes, I think you should do it like that every night. And they're like, oh, well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> and then they, they realize that he has, he has a shirt on, um, but he's in his underwear. <laughs> and he turns to someone they can't see who's in the room, and he yells out, pants? No. <laughs> yes. I... I I want it to be true, and I, I think it is true. I just think it's the great. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> peaks behind the curtain. This is this yes. is the stuff you only get from rock and roll lifers who have crossed paths with Bob in the dressing rooms of North Carolina. Thank, uh, thank you, John. Thank Indeed. you. That was really ex- that was fun for me, and it's great to uh, be on a podcast that I listen to. All the time. What an honor that that you listen to us uh, ramble. <laughs> you're you're flattering us uh, uh, too much. We we truly do not deserve it. I get people listening to hear Ian and his staid and insensible takes, and I I am always surprised that anybody has the patience to listen to uh, <laughs> the other half of Jokerman podcast. It's uh, it's a little it's a little high, it's a little low. It, it, it's how the, all the greatest podcasts are, just like uh, just like the best show. Yeah, it's yeah, true. it's so, so can, true. They can't all be winners. Exactly. <laughs> Every episode. Literally, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just you just got to get to the next one. Well, pants, pants.